Welcome to Healing Generations, a podcast creating a dialogue uplifting the importance of healing, strengthening, and supporting our communities, and that addresses the disparities and inequities in communities of color. Healing Generations is brought to you by the Healing Generations Institute, a collaborative initiative of the National Compadres Network and the Brotherhood of Elders. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on our new releases. So welcome. Uh, this is Jerry Teo from the Healing Generations Institute. And on behalf of the National Compadres Network and the Brotherhood of Elders, we want to welcome you to another episode of the Healing Generations podcast. And we come in attempts to really bring the medicine of the generations of, of people of all races and all colors uh, together, but at the same time recognizing that we have generations of trauma that we need to heal. And so part of that uh, legacy is is focusing on that healing. And so we want to begin today just uh, giving thanks to Creator and to the ancestors, to all of ancestors, to your ancestors, and recognize you, recognize the the land in which we sit on and uh, where you're sitting as well. We acknowledge the original people from there, but acknowledge your community, your family, as we acknowledge each other in the way that it should be, in a sacred way, in a respectful and dignified way. And that's part of the healing, and that's part of the uh, acknowledgement as well. And we come today um, reflecting on, on you know some four uh, years of recording these podcasts and have chosen to to reach back and listen and reflect on the teachings of Maestra Concha Salcedo, who I had the pleasure of interviewing uh, some several years ago, a number of years ago in 2020. And the wisdom and the knowledge and, and the joy and the teachings that she shared were so profound that we felt it was very important uh, for us to, to replay them and re-listen to them. You know, listening to those elders, they tell those same stories sometimes, but but every time you listen to them, they're a little bit different and ring a little bit different. And so there was a double episode that we did with her. And we uh, will replay this now for you. And hopefully this will be something that can resonate and you can hear. And, and it's really pertinent for today. So uh, we welcome Maestra Concha Salcedo sharing her teachings and her wisdom. And we invite you to listen uh, in a good way so that we can bring that healing to the generations that we need. We're very blessed today to be able to listen to the teachings and um, counsel of La Maestra Concha Salcedo. La Maestra is a PhD psychologist. Uh, she's also a wisdom keeper, a healer, an icon in our community. She's been trailblazing for many, many years and advocating for the dignity and respect of our traditional ways, of our indigenous ways, but also for the respect of of the generations of medicine that we carry and that all indigenous people carry. Maestra Concha was one of the first PhD psychologists, and especially as a female, a Chicana, really opened the way for a lot of us uh, that knew in our spirits that that we had something uh, to give and that we uh, carried something in our tradition, but didn't know how to articulate that. La Maestra began then talking about the concept of la cultura cura, or that culture that cures or that healing medicine that we, that all indigenous people, all people of color carry within them. And so she brings that, those teachings to us today. I was very blessed to be able to spend some time with her and uh, interview her and have a dialogue and listen to the history 
that she had to walk, uh, the struggles that she had to get through, but also the counsel of what helped her get through and what kept her on that path. And I think it's very pertinent for today in this time in which we're you know, in the middle of a pandemic uh, for COVID-19 in which it causes you know, us to shelter in place. So we've had to kind of hunker down with our families and even go inside individually. It's challenged us to, to get closer to those things that are significant to us and to really reassess you know, what's important in our lives. The other pandemic, though, that is facing us is the pandemic of racism that for uh, people of color have uh, been facing for 500 years, and but it's now again raised its head, something that many of us uh, have been struggling with and have been advocating against for for many generations. And, and we hear in Concha's, uh, Maestra Concha's story about how long that legacy and even how far it goes back. So I was very blessed to, to really have this interview where there was going to be broken into two parts. This first one, she talks about history, and she talks about culture, and she talks about those teachings that come along the way as we uh, move on this journey of healing generations. Let's listen to Maestra. Thank you, Jerry. First of all, I want to thank my ancestors, all the tatas that came before me, and all those teachers around me. And I want to thank you also, because I know your work and the good work that you have done, so that if I helped in any way, I'm thankful for that. And you asked a question, who am I? Now, that's a difficult uh, question to answer, but I'll start with, first of all, I'm the daughter of Carlos and Rosa, parents who saw something in me, and nourished it. And so much of what I do now is really what they taught me. And, and one of the things that my father used to say to all of us, and we were girls that grew up, the, the, the boys in the family had died, and he said, if you have any talent, you must use it not only for yourself, but for others. So that has always been a kind of a guiding light of uh, thinking, is, is this just for me or is it really for other people as well? And that if I have some talent and some brain, then I need to utilize it in such a way that it grows and expands and can help other people grow and expand. So I think in some ways that's the essence of me, that I truly can say I love people, human beings of all colors, you know, of all genders. And I guess I was, I was uh, taught to serve. People say, well, what, did, what does that mean? That um, you're giving yourself to others? Well, yes, in order to help the others become who they can become. And, you know, what, what else? Who... What else am I? Who else am I? A person that loves to laugh? You know, I think that's a healing. I love good stories. I like making bromas on people <laughs> and people on me. Uh, I think I'm musical. Mm. You know, I love rhythms and movement, you know, and song. Because all of life is movement. 
all of life is movement. And right now, you know, these days that we're living uh, in 2020, there's a lot of movement. And uh, with movement, I think I've learned one has to be careful. If you're not careful, you stumble and fall. I would break my hip and I would be done, right? So I think I'm all of those things that make uh, a human being. And it really all stems from my ancestors all the way back, through my parents and through my sisters. I'm, I'm the youngest, and I felt I was always pushed around, and I thought they were bullies, but they weren't. But being the youngest, I learned how to negotiate, because the same with cousins, I was always the youngest. And so then it means you have to learn how to move through that maze of, you know, older people. And what else am I? I, I like to think of myself, and I don't like these terms, but I think I have an open heart. But I also have an open mind and an intellect, and I like to use it. I like to think, and not just think, but reflect, particularly at this time. I'll say my age now. I'm 85 years old. Some people say I'm this, this young. No, I'm old. <laughs> and I'm happy to be here. <laughs> you know, I'm happy to be 85 and in relatively in good health. And that I can laugh. I can laugh at myself. Uh, I'm a person that doesn't have regrets. You know, I can look back and say, yes, I made that mistake. I made that error and I have made plenty. But, que puedo hacer? It's done. I'm not going to do the same thing again. But living with regret to me seems like a waste of time. The other thing is a waste of time is worrying. Why worry? You can use that time to try to resolve what you're worrying about. Or to recognize that maybe it doesn't have a resolution and let it drop to the side. But, you know, when I work with people, I say, hey, it, you're just wasting your time worrying. You know, the same as wasting your time complaining, unless you take an action. I, I learned to be a person of action, uh, watching my father. And my mother and father were uh, immigrants. But they came here in 1927. Uh, at that time in Mexico, there was the Cristero movement. And my father, and it was a movement with guns and everything. And my father was involved in that, very much so. And my mother and father weren't married yet. But she had a good friend in the government, in the revolutionary government, who said, you better tell to Novio that he and his family better leave now because they're on a list to be removed. So he and his family left immediately. And they had compadres up here in Sacramento and in San Francisco. And then my mother followed. Her brothers wouldn't accompany her to La Frontera. And she said, well, I'm going anyway, whether you accompany me or not. And so then they gave in. She got married by proxy, right, in Texas. And then, so he had that strong of faith and a man of action. So when he, he was here, he used to work a lot with, um, there was a band of priests 
who were social action, social justice priests, and they worked with los campesinos. So I was the youngest, and so I wasn't in school always, so I would go with my father when he was helping organize and preaching, because he was very Catholic. And uh, I think I learned from that, you know, and from my mother as well. And one of the things I learned, I never heard her complain. I never heard her. And she had left all her family. She didn't see, and she had eight brothers and sisters. And she left all of them behind, and she didn't see her mother for 30 years. Because in those days, everybody was poor. They were poor there, and they were poor here. But she did, she did a wonderful thing. She helped us connect it to Mexico. We would uh, send magazines that they liked, and we would write on the margins of the magazine, or we would put things that we had made, and uh, we would write to my abuelita. And for years, I thought that was my abuelita's name, because it said, abuelita, right abuelita, right abuelita. <laughs> Later, I found out that my abuelita's name was Rosa, as was my mother's. And um, I think there's another aspect to me, is that the lineage, the native lineage is Yaki. And, uh, you know, the Yaquis never gave up. They could never be put down. So I think that strength comes through. You know, I believe in cultural DNA. It's there. So all of those things, to answer your question, uh, I think all of those things make me me. Very powerful words. Um, you know, and it uh, took me back to growing up in my family, too. You know, one of the powerful things that, that she mentioned was talking about her father and how her father had to move because he was on a list. He was on a list to be tortured, to be violated, to probably be killed. And, you know, it reminds me of, of how this has been going on for a long time, as many of our, you know, African-American brothers, uh, definitely, and many people of color as well, feel like they're on a list on a list uh, to be disrespected, to uh, be violated, and to be killed. We, we saw that in, with uh, Mr. George Floyd. And so, you know, Maestra reminds us that this struggle has been going on for a long time. But she also shares the teaching of, you know, why be worried? Uh, why complain if you're not going to take action? And so she gives us that counsel of that we can dialogue about something, we can complain about something, we can worry about something, but if we're not going to take action, then, then what good is it? Why should we uh, use our energy that way? And she began then also sharing about in her process of living in this country, of li living in this society, the impact that it had on confusing her, confusing her about who she was and who she is and and if she had value or had any type of worth or voice. And it uh, caused her to, to, to go back to Mexico, a village, and uh, search out her own identity. And that she went to a curandera, a healer, traditional healer. And the healer asked her, well, so what do you want? And she says, well, I'm looking for my voice. I'm looking for my purpose. And the healer says, oh, you need to be healed. She says that was very profound to her because she didn't realize that the reason why she couldn't find her voice and she didn't know her purpose is because of all the generational trauma, the oppression, the misguided words, and, and uh, the inequity, and all the racism that now had been internalized in her. And so 
she talks about the importance of uh, social justice really requires the, the, the need to, to know yourself, to know your purpose, and to be connected, to really be connected to, uh, to who you are as a people, who you are, and know the worth that you carry and that your people carry and the medicine that, that you carry. But it's a journey. And in this next segment, she, you know, she talks about you know, some of those struggles. Uh, some of the things that she had to confront and, and uh, stand up for. So uh, let's uh, continue to listen to the master. How did I find myself, Willie? Well, you know, I, I went to Catholic schools and uh, very good education on one side, but all the prejudices of white nuns, uh, class prejudice as well as racial prejudice. And so I always felt... Um, like I didn't belong there, and that there was something wrong with the way they treated me and the few others of me that were there. And, you know, that stayed with me. And at at that time, I was also a person that uh, did not talk a lot. And uh, you were taught to respect those elders, so you didn't mouth off to the nun, to the sister. And so then in college, it began... I began to see, well, maybe I need to, I need to speak up. Certain things happen in college. And uh, I went to College of Notre Dame in Belmont. And um, I ran for uh, the president of the resident students. And I think there was one other Chicana and then people from Central America, but wealthy. And then one black person. But all the others were white, but they wanted me to run. And uh, the sister, one of the sisters who was head of, the, of that part of the convent came to me and said, you know, I don't think you should run. I kind of go like, she says, well, you don't talk enough. And I go, oh, to myself. But it made me so, it made me very angry, very angry, because I knew it was about something else, a number of things. She had a, another girl that she favored, and she didn't think, I would be able to do it. That was the bottom line. And, and I went and hid and cried. I would never cry in front of them. And you know who the them are. But I won. I won the election. And I learned to talk. talk well, the thing was, everybody talked a lot and in like a meeting. And I would listen to them and say, well, why is she saying that? That's already been said twice. There was that like need to... Uh, to talk so you could be seen. And I don't think I had that need. And my family was not, we didn't all just talk a lot. You know, you're there present with people. So how is that connected to the question? Um, So I I think I began to form an idea of righting wrongs, right? Now, this is a little aside, but it's related. When I was about seven or eight, we lived in the country, uh, Niles, which is part of South Alameda County, and I formed a mystery club. We were going to solve mysteries. <laughs> We'd cut out of the newspaper, but and I love reading mystery stories, but that idea that there is some wrong out there that I could somehow help to make right, that was kind of forming. And and I had a lot of kinds of experiences, you know, and saw what was happening. 
and at, at some point I, I, we worked in the fields, so you experienced that. And, you know, at that time, they would sell you water. You, you couldn't drink water, and there were no toilets, and, you know, all of that. All, all of that began, like, simmering within me, you know, taking heat, taking heat. And then, and this has to go back a little bit, I, um, I had rheumatic fever uh, when I was 10 and nearly died. And, you know, those experiences create uh, a change in you. And on my 10th birthday, they dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima on August 6, 1945. And my father took me aside and said, you know, that is immoral. What they have done, that's immoral. And do you understand why? I said, yes, but I didn't understand why. And it was a number of things, because he was a, a peace person, but it was also why it was dropped on the Japanese uh, the racial undertone. So, all, you know, all of those things just sit in you. And so when I first, when I graduated, and I graduated young from college, it was um, the peace movement uh, was happening. And so I became involved with Ban the Bomb and um, people working for peace. And then that was a quick leap to working for Chicanos because then... I went and moved to Gilroy, uh, which was very much country then. You know, and half the population were Mexicanos, campesinos, and the other half were the white people that owned the land. And I was the first Chicana teacher that they had had. And my field was history, but they said, no, you teach Spanish. <laughs> because, and this is the kind of the misogyny, because all the men taught like the social studies classes and the women taught English and languages. And then in the business department, it was mixed. You know, so all of these things are happening and I'm, I'm young, I'm 20, I'm 21 and experiencing these things. And then I just saw so many things and experienced so many things there. And uh, then I got married and then uh, we began organizing among the migrant workers. Because at that time, and people think it's bad now, that time they were literally living in chicken coops, right, without cleaning out the chicken coop, right? So we used to, I used to go and do uh, puppet shows with the children. And so, you know, all of those things, and then at that time was the beginning of uh, Cesar Chavez. And a little before that, I had gotten involved with the civil rights movement with African-Americans. And then so it was a kind of a, a growth process that happened and uh, transition. And uh, I knew, I didn't understand it at that time. I knew at one point I had to leave my husband and go on the trek from Delano to Sacramento for that Easter way back. And all I knew at that time to say was, I have to do this. Because I began feeling that I was, that going through college and having a certain education was separating me from who I truly was. And so I had to be there. And that began the process again of reconnecting with my roots. Uh, because for a time, I became a socialist. Well, now I'm, now I am 
still, but a democratic socialist. But I was more socialist, communist. And I left the Catholic Church and the institutional church. And I was married to a, a man who was a sociologist and very intellectual and all his friends. And it's the Vietnam War. And, all, and they're having intellectual discussions about the war. And I'm going, what is wrong with you? That war is wrong, mm. you know, period. And um, so that, you know, it, it, it's a process that happens to one. And I was never afraid of action. And I had been trained with CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality and NAACP, around peaceful methods of resisting. And so it fit with everything else. And so little by little by little by little, I became involved in what we call the Chicano movement. And then returning to my own roots, going to Mexico, to Oaxaca. I went to Oaxaca for 20 years and uh, connected with a woman there, uh, Doña Amparo, who taught me many things particularly about spirituality and the healing practices. So when going back, people were having intellectual discussions about the war. I realized that there was like no spirit connected to people and that I felt I had lost that spiritual connection. And so part of going back to Mexico and particularly to Oaxaca I kept saying when I met Don Amparo, who, who uh, facilitated uh, sacred mushroom ceremonies, I came to find my voice. And yeah, I used to like to sing, and I thought, maybe that's what I'm talking about. And she says, ah, vino para una curación. He came for a healing, and that's what I had come. And so then that opened up the door. Wow, some very powerful words. Uh, and she says, uh, you know, I knew it wasn't right, and, and I knew that I had to be part of righting the wrongs, but that it was painful, so painful that uh, when she was told that, you know, she wasn't smart enough or didn't have a loud enough voice or didn't speak up enough, that she didn't let it stop her, but it caused her to cry. But she went off to the side to cry. She says, I would never cry in front of them. And how many of us uh, do our hearts cry inside when even we walk in a room and recognize we're not wanted or, or we're not seen in, in our educational systems or history or on TV? And more importantly, when we don't feel safe in our communities and don't feel represented by those people who are supposed to re represent us. And at the other end, where we feel targeted, that we're uh, going to get hurt or killed or that our children, you know, uh, don't feel safe and and, you know, as a father and as a grandfather, I worry about my children and, you know, and having discussions with the Babas, you know, and, and the uh, African-American relatives of that conversation that they have to have, especially with their boys. Uh, not even when they're young men, when they just grow up and look like young men, but they have to reground them, and but they have to prepare them for that struggle. So the Maestra talks about that, the, 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 the importance of, of knowing who you are, but uh, having people around you that can reground you and, and help you, you know, be able to, to speak the truth uh, for social justice. Let's go on and, and, and listen to uh, Maestra as she you know, begins to enlighten us more on, on the aspect of how we can heal, but ground ourselves in that, the sense of our sacred purpose as well. 
you know, I, I found looking back, the, the Chicano movement that I was involved with was very political and social, but didn't have any spiritual aspect to it. And people got lost in that process. So I was looking for the spiritual indigenous aspect, and that's what I found in Mexico and found here, and made that kind of connection, which gave me back a spiritual life that was not the institutional Catholic Church. I mean, I feel I can, I can pray anywhere, but I like to pray outside. You know, I like to pray with my redwood tree. It just, to me, nature is a manifestation of the creator and of creation. And so that's what connects me, not only to all of that, but to other human beings. And then how did I end up doing the things I did in psychology and all of that? Well, I, I went back to school after I got divorced and got a, a master's in history and uh, 20th century uh, Mexican history. And then, you know, they started organizing Chicano studies programs. And so I worked in the first Chicano studies program at uh, San Jose Community College. So that got me into that kind of... And then, um, you know, I taught for a time in, in uh, ethnic studies at UC, Chicano studies. I was the second woman but I was already in a different progression. They were uh, kind of caught in, um, you know, all Chicanos have to be socialists, right? <laughs> and then they called me the, the cultural nativist or something, but I, I never went for any of those labels. You know, I was just exploring everything and exploring it because I was always a little older than everybody, so I was a little always further ahead in the exploration of things, of just rediscovering. So um, I discovered a lot of things, interesting things in Chicano studies because it was primarily all men and they were still stuck in being men uh, in a certain kind of way. So it was difficult for any woman that was in that group. But then later, it's an amazing thing, and they were supposed to be radicals, but they weren't radicals in their interaction with students or with their colleagues. Later, I had an opportunity to teach in the School of Social Work at UC, and that's a very essentially more conservative place. But they would leave you alone if you did what you were supposed to do. And if the students uh, respected what you were doing, there was no problem with what you would do. And that's kind of the difference when people haven't had time to reflect on who they truly were and what that meant if you were going to be a, a radical Chicano or Chicana, that it was both. But that wasn't happening at that time. And I think I, I taught at most uh, as an instructor in most uh, universities around here. And then I decided, and again, it was a, a new college here in San Francisco, that claimed to be New College, a very open. And they asked me and a number of other people, an, an Asian woman and an African-American man, uh, to come and look at their curricula in uh, psychology uh, to see if they were, you know, doing a more appropriate kind of psychology. And we looked through everything and made some recommendations, and then they offered us a course to teach. And we said, well, 
there needs to be something more. We need to see what uh, books are being read. What does other people's curricula look like? And then they said, oh, no, you can't do that, academic freedom. And we said, well, if you want to make a change, we, if they're reading the same books and teaching the same theories, we're not in any different place. There's no cultural appropriateness here. And then I, I co-taught a class, and we decided, the, the other teacher was African-American, that we would bring in Afrocentric psychology to examine that. And then I'd have people come in from uh, Northern Natives and from Chicanos and Latinos. And the class was re pretty receptive. But then someone said, well, why don't you bring in a Jewish person? And I have to laugh. I mean, I, I could have been more uh, finessed more. I said, well, why? Everything that is uh, in the curricula is, if you look at the last names, it comes out of a theoretical, theoretical framework that starts with Freud, and we're talking about something else. Well, that created an alarm with the powers that be there, and they said, well, maybe uh, you should come back another time to teach. I said, I understand what you're saying. Well, you know, people complained. I said, well, I was telling the truth as I saw it, you know, and you wanted to have a different kind of emphasis. Well, it couldn't be there if you didn't have the materials. And so then that's when I decided I'm not going to play around anymore <laughs> in these universities. Uh, I'll just do teaching in the community in however way people want me to do it. And that's what I've been doing, and I'm still doing. As we listen to her teachings, um, once again, she reinforces the, the importance of a spiritual base and talked about how when she experienced some of the movements, and especially she mentioned the Chicano movement and some of the other, that movement, and that there was a very strong political uh, fight and even against the, the Vietnam War and all of that, but that she didn't find that there was a strong spiritual base. And, you know, from my uh, living, you know, the life of being around uh, for that, you know, the first uh, uprising in the 60s and then through the Rodney King era and now, you know, and, and then dialoguing with, with elders of those movements, we recognize that the movements that really that took stronghold had a spiritual base. And she really advocates for that, that spiritual base as a necessary part of a political action as well. You know, but that it's important also to to know your history and to know your culture and to read the right uh, the books, because the books that are given to us tell us a false history about who we are. We must know our authentic history, our authentic culture, and read about the social movements that have come before to help us prepare for that uh, next phase of life and 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 our next movement that we need to build. And and so the maestra, you know, really. Uh, emphasizes the sense of, of our cultural rootedness, our cultural knowledge, and our spiritual base as, as a grounding point for us uh, moving together and moving along. Uh, in this next segment, she, she talks about how that, uh, the woundedness can get inside of us and get in our relationships, how it can affect the way uh, our partner relationships, our family relationships, uh, the colonized thinking that can get into uh, to us as well. And so let's listen and, and uh, see how we see it impacting us today. Let's look at what it was like 
before, before the invasion of the Spanish and the French. You know, how did men and women relate to each other? Was there one was better than the other? Uh, one was less than the other? And what I discovered that though you had very distinct roles, there was equal value to the role. And that's the difference. Yes, you were making the tortillas, but the husband went out and had to get the corn. And you couldn't do one without the other. But that shifted when the invasion came because the Spaniard came with a different view of women, either put them away in the castle or not think of them as persons. And what happened was what we call, I call the psychology of the oppressed, that you begin, which is a natural thing, you begin identifying with those who have power. And so if you were a man and saw the Spanish man doing whatever he wanted to do with whomever he wanted to do it with and treating women in a certain kind of way, then you adapted, not because you were bad or evil, but because you wanted to survive. That's a, Bad things happen out of survival sometimes, and we can see it now. We see the people on the street doing certain things because their bottom line is to survive that day, right? So out of that survival, another capa, another layer came over our cultura, which was, it's not its true essence. And people say, well, that was, that was you know, 500 years ago or more. That's true. But in our DNA, we carry those other ways. You know, I see it when uh, I used to go out on the street more when I was at Instituto down to the corner, 24th and, and uh, Mission, where one of the gangs hung out there. And, you know, to talk to them and to let them know what, what uh, offerings we had. And, uh, you know, they would always, uh, of course, I was older, but, you know, I held my ground with them because I would say, okay, you know, you're hanging out and you tell me this is your turf here. Okay. I said, I can claim all of it, every corner. And I said, but if you claim it as your turf, you should take care of it and take care of the people that come through here. You know, when the viejita comes by, why don't you offer to, to carry her bags? Oh, but we've tried that. But, you know, they look at us, I said, of course, because you're standing there in a position of power and mad-dogging everybody. You know, I said, how old are you, 15? I'm not afraid of you. I can slap you down, <laughs> right? They would use humor, right? And I also found that any time that we went out, when there was a shooting or something happening in the community, we'd go out with the smoke and a little drum and go to wherever it happened, with some, sometimes with the danzantes if they could, sometimes not, and we would, you know, we would pray. And we would clean that space. And inevitably, there always been some young little bato. Yeah, what's that stuff that you're, excuse me, well, what's that stuff that you're doing? I said, that stuff is you. Mm-hmm. You know, we'd get into a little, you know, at first they'd kind of look, but they were drawn to the smoke. Or they were drawn to the drumbeat. And that comes from 500 years of carrying all that inside of us. So Maestra talks about uh, in this segment, you know, that the, <laughs> the even some of the false ways that, that uh, have come into our culture. 
uh, that have affected male-female relationships. Uh, she talks about misogyny and and uh, when the Europeans came, that they introduced a different way of how we should relate to each other, how we see each other as males and females, how we see elders as different, and how we see children different, that that the Europeans had a whole different way of, of looking at valuing people. And, and there was a hierarchical system of valuing people as well. She called it the uh, psychology of the oppressed, the colonized thinking. And she uh, says to us that we also have that now in us. And it's important that we spend time healing, decolonizing, detoxifying uh, from those ways and learning our true sacred ways, that the sacredness is still in our DNA, that is there, but we have uh, the wounds there as well. So this process of healing really is about weeding our gardens, uh, weeding that uh, the oppressive ways and the indoctrinated, colonized toxicity that is in us. And that's really important even in our movements, even in the work that we do and, and how we approach the work as well. But she mentioned something real interesting, you know, even in the wounds, we, we end up having to respond to, to the woundedness. And, and she shares a, a story about when uh, someone had died and there was, a, you know, a violence and, and a death. And, and in our tradition, we go out and, and uh, take the medicine out there, take the traditions out there, and maybe even take the danza out there, right? And, and she lit some, uh, some kupal and some sage and, and offered some prayers, you know, for the, the families that were struggling. And that there was a youngster out there that says, well, what is that? What is that smoke? And she says to him, you are the smoke. So, well, what is that dance you guys did? Oh, you are that dance. Well, what is that, that medicine? This is you are that medicine. Well, what are these ways? And she said, you are the ways. So she reminded that youngster that that stuff is in you. It's there. And it's important for us to recognize that in spite of the woundedness and the colonization and in spite of even uh, some of these ways that we've picked up that are, that are not healthy for us, that it's never too late, that we recognize that we have that, the strength within us, within our culture. All of these things exist right there before us. So let's listen to the maestra again as she, uh, she you know, talks to us then about, you know, what do we need to do? How do we heal ourselves, you know, in, uh, in sometimes this very toxic and very oppressive world? As my understanding of it and as it's developed that universally within each culture, there are elements and activities that have been used traditionally to take care of oneself, to heal oneself, both physically as well as spiritually, uh, as well as emotionally. Those ways we know but have forgotten or have been taught. And I still uh, do trainings with um, interns that are in social work and psychology. And a lot of them now are in PhD programs and they come, you know, all eager and the first thing I have to tell them is, I'm not going to talk about anything that you're learning in school. We're going to talk about what you need to learn to work with the people, to explore that. Because the theories that come out of Western psychology come out of that culture. It's natural. It grows. But they're not all universal. There are many things that are specific to a culture. And so, you know, for us, I think the spirit the spiritual, is essential to our cultura. And so we have to 
be healed from only being in our heads and take a walk down to our heart, right? And it's a long walk sometimes, particularly if you've been in school a long time. I mean, that, and that's why I had to go to Mexico to 10,000 miles up to find that again. Because otherwise we do damage to the people. You know, help the people. And I don't know if you met, I think he probably met Tlacaele when he was here. And one of the things that he said to us one time, he says, remember, you are the medicine. Right? And that's what I say to people. You are the medicine. The medicine is within you. And then sometimes you need a little help to get it out. You know? Someone to help trigger that memory again. You know, one of the things that um, that I uh, remember in this interview is is the, the the powerful teaching of that she presents of taking a walk from your head to your heart. And that sometimes, you know, that is a painful walk because we carry many different things in our heart, um, blessings and love, but also sometimes hurts that we have to, to heal from. You know, and that, that healing energy that we uh, carry within us is so important. And when I think about, you know, how we manifest that in our relationships and how, you know, what is the teachings that we want to give our kids and our grandchildren, and especially right now, because, you know, it's a very difficult time. How do we teach our children, our grandchildren to, uh, to persevere, to stay strong? What are the things that we want them to know and them to integrate in their lives as we move forward? Uh, we end the segment. Uh, she says something about anger. And we, I ask her about that anger, you know, about that anger. What is that anger about? And uh, she's going to talk to us about how she's converted that anger into love. If you are present in the ceremony without trying to analyze it, uh, you know, too much analysis is paralysis. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like without trying to analyze, why are they doing that? This just to be so present that you can feel the energy. Because I haven't mentioned that, but healing is about energy. You know, so that as you and I talk, there's an energy that's moving, there's an energy with the young man, there's an energy with you, there's an energy with the camera as well. And it's that energy that goes from one person to another that is healing. It's the energy in a relationship. So when, say I'm doing therapy, I, I could use any theoretical framework. But it's the relationship that I develop with that person that's going to make that possible for that person to find that healing. And I'm just an instrument. You know, I don't think, well, one can do this. There's energy that goes. So, you know, in, in uh, conventional psychology, Western psychology, uh, if you're going to be a therapist, they talk about you, you know, you have to be careful, don't touch people. You know, don't overstep this boundary. Don't have pictures on your wall that can identify something about yourself. And I said, that's crazy. You know, because we know, I mean, we, as, as a cultura, we touch each other. And in that touching, we are sending energy. So we, we do have to be careful how we're feeling when we're touching somebody, when, when you're doing a massage, you know that, right? And if someone's going to touch us, you know, I've had to sometimes jump, jump back 
because I can feel something from that person that I don't want. Or the same in our voice, you know, how we use our voice. You know, does it uh, manifest kindness? All right, o siempre estamos gritando. How does it feel? I think you've told stories, verdad, about that of, it's not the words. I used to work with a young man whose every other word was uh, the F word. I go, come on, that's boring. You know, well, the, the, oh, I, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I said, hey, I've heard them in probably 10 different languages. <laughs> but it's not the word, it's the force, it's the energy that comes with that word that's damaging to people. So if we're doing talking therapy, we have to be very careful of our voice and think about what we're saying. You know, is it necessary? Is it useful? Is it helpful? Is it kind? In whatever we do, is it kind? Today, I just, uh, you know, want to uh, really recognize, you know, all those elders that have come before us and the ancestors that stand with us, that are still with us, that all we have to do is just take a deep breath, maybe uh, sing a sacred song, maybe play a drum, maybe a hymn, something that reminds us of our cultural ways. Sometimes we just have to be still and in our spiritual center, just call to those ancient ones. And some of you, you may not know them by name, but they are with you. And the Maestro reminds us of that. So as we begin, you know, this journey of, of recovering our sacredness and healing generations, I, I call to you to, to take time to, uh, to reflect on what is the medicine within you? What are those blessings that you carry? And what are the teachings that your ancestors have taught you, even sometimes in difficult times and, and many times in the most of difficult times? And so I ask you uh, to love yourself and to love those people around you and to love who you are in, in, in all that it brings, that you come from a sacred root, you come from sacred people, and we come from sacred traditions. At the same time, we recognize that uh, that rootedness can help us. It can help us advocate and help us uh, go out there and, and demand that the racial equity and the social justice that we all deserve, that is part of all of us that way. So we left off by asking her, so how did you transform that anger? Because she talked about that she was angry for a while and uh, transformed it into love. And so I'm eager uh, to play this and to, to hear her, but uh, I invite you to, to open your hearts and open your minds as we listen to uh, Maestra uh, Concha Salcedo. How did I get? Yes, I was out in the street like this. And I was good. I mean, I wasn't, it was like theater to me. It was like drama, you know. Esa fuerza that came from that. And now that you asked me, I said, I, I think the greatest energy comes from love. And how did that happen? It took a long time. And I was telling you, uh, maybe uh, 20 years ago, I was still angry. But I could modulate it better. But then I was asked by a relative of my family, that's a sister, if I would come and do a weekend workshop for the Latino sisters and the African-American sisters because they were having trouble in their order because they felt they couldn't worship the way they wanted to 
you know, singing the songs that they were accustomed to, different things. So at first I thought, I don't want, I don't want to do that because I had negative memories of going to school with those nuns and I, I didn't want to be around them. And then, well, this is a family member, right, that's asking you. So I said, well, maybe it's time to do that. And when I went to this workshop, I, you know, talked about cultura, you know, cultura cura, I talked about our values and different things. And they had placed a very old sister next to me who was hard of hearing. And then I was talking about the experiences I had had as a young person and what had happened to children in the school. And she started to cry. And I, oh, you know, what did I say or do here? And then she said, I, if I had known what you talked about, I would have done things differently with the children. She was from Los Angeles. So I imagine she was talking about Chicano children. And so that kind of opened something in me. It kind of, it healed something because she was so authentic. She was so authentic. And she didn't know any better. She was a little old white nun and she had learned what they all had learned or had been taught or had uh, tried to make sense of what she saw and made sense of it in a different way. And that was about 20 years ago. So from that time on, it softened me up again. You know, I'm saying soften me up in the sense that you have strength, but it's uh, mellow, it's soft, it's like jello. You can. Uh, I love jello, <laughs> Arturo Carrillo, that song that he, we do with drumming. And the more I explore my own experience and how I'm feeling now, that I just I feel good. You know, I feel feliz, happy. And see, that comes from feeling love. And I'm fortunate that I have family all around me and good comadres, compadres, young people who seek me out. I, I, enjoy, I enjoy young people a lot. You know, teenagers and early 20s. Reminded one who called me up once and says, can I come and chop it up? And I go, what are you going to chop up? <laughs> oh, can you explain it to me? He just laughed and laughed. And uh, he had had a very, very difficult life. And now he's in such a good place. But the other thing was it wasn't just me working with him. It was a group of people all really giving him love, showing him what he, that he could love. You know, through, through experiencing love that someone gives you, uh, regardless of what, you learn to, to love yourself. So it's a slow process because it's so easy nowadays to be angry because there are things that are hurtful and harmful that are going on in all over the world. Wow, what some beautiful teachings. Uh, the Maestra really... Uh talks a lot about how the powerful energy of love, of that love is really the most powerful healing energy, but also, you know, begins to talk about a mantra and be important for us to incorporate in our spirits, that we have to, you know, build that, that mantra of that we are important, that we are loved, that we are sacred, that we are a blessing, that we must say that to ourselves and, and fortify ourselves, if you will, to build our our energy and our, our spirit and our aura 
because we often live in a world that doesn't give us those messages of, of beauty and love and recognize our sacredness and recognize our medicine. So the Maestra talks about that, but she also talks about how the woundedness sometimes can get into, uh, you know, our relationships, our male-female relationships, and and um, how it's important for us to um, to even release and cleanse from from wounded ways in order that we can recapture those ways that are sacred uh, to who we are and sacred to to our uh, to the essence of, of who we are. So let's uh, let's continue the dialogue and continue the listening as as the maestra talks to us. You know, uh, just about that uh, development and recovering, and and even to this, this to, we ask her the question about what what are the messages you would uh, want to share our uh, next generations of grandchildren uh, to carry on. You know, what is what is important in that, and she shares some very powerful teachings that way. I want all grandchildren to enjoy their lives and to enjoy their grandparents for what their grandparents bring with them that all, I think all grandparents have a vision and have something to offer their grandchildren, except people don't communicate too much anymore with, with all the apparatos, right? And for, I would ask the grandchildren to really look at your grandparents and reach out to them, have a conversation with them, ask them about their life, because we like to talk about our lives and what we're learning. And in doing so, the relationship will be strengthened. And they will ask you questions and they will learn, you know, from that. And, you know, what I, what I want for all children is to have a good life, a healthy life, and to have a lot of love in their life. And to find that, you have to love. They themselves have to love themselves and others and all the plants, and all the trees, and all the dogs, and all the cats, and all the animals. Because they also give, you know, we forget that what we call pets have a spirit. And sometimes we are imponiendo. I, I don't like to see animals all dressed up, you know, because they don't do that. They already have their their fur, their skin. They, they don't have to bother with that. Um, there's so much, but really, I, I'll quote a a Tibetan proverb that uh, when Tibetans were asked, and, and I feel there's a lot of parallel between the Tibetan philosophy and our own in terms of how to be in the world. And when asked, you know, how do you live a, a good and healthy life? The answer was, eat half what you eat, walk twice what you walk, laugh thrice what you laugh, and love without measure. I think para nosotros es el, el amor no tiene color. El amor no tiene color. And love, uh, say to the grandchildren, don't put conditions on your love. Or I would say that to men. Right? Don't, you know, if you... Uh, wear your hair this way, or if, you know, some men are very controlling. They want to change the woman. Well, changing the woman means they don't love the woman as she is. So then we have to love ourselves as we are and then try to make ourselves better if we want to be better. I think grandchildren should, or all children should talk more. It's, 
you know, they get a certain age and they don't want to talk to the adults or to the elders. They did when they were little. So they can do it again. There's so much to gain, so much laughter, so much wonder. I think the other thing I would say, don't lose wonder. You know, look up at the sky. You know, on a day like this in San Francisco, look up at the sky. It's beautiful. There may be clouds floating around, and it's beautiful. Because that wonder then gives us, uh, nourishes our spirit. You know, it's uh, it, never boring. People ask me sometimes, you know, now that you've retired, well, I, I've never retired from anything. I mean, I left a particular position. But I retire? No. You know, I'm eager. What's, what's the next project? What can I get into? You know, uh, when, where can I sing and dance? You know, that's uh, what I loved uh, going to work at Instituto, that I could be myself, literally, and sing and dance, literally, and tell bad jokes, right? And there'd always be someone to laugh. So it's like just live your life fully with care, and live your life in such a way that um, you care for others. And, and using care in that way of meaning love. And that you show that to others. And that you find ways to express it. In this the final segment, I'm asked that you know, really enforces the significance of healing. She says, because sometimes those wounds can turn to anger and they can turn to hate. So she quotes this uh, Tibetan philosophy that says, uh, eat half as much, you know, and we're a consumption society that sometimes eat too much. And she says, walk twice as much, you know, and, and that uh, in that walking, for some people, that is also uh, meditation and prayer. And then she says, uh, laugh three times as much, right? And that laughter and that joy and that pleasure. And that's why in many of our cultures, we like to dance, we like to party, we like to to joke, and we like to have fun, because that's medicine too. And she reminds us that even in the struggle, even in our healing, even you know, in, in this tough time, that we need to make room for that laughter, for that joy, for the dance, for the singing. When I'm with the, the Babas and the Brotherhood of Elders and Baba Greg begins to play those drums, you know, I, there's a vibration that begins to stimulate. And it's not just the drum beat. It's a vibration that is, you know, really generations old. And when he begins to chant, I feel the energy of, of that chant that is, you know, generations old. And, and we begin to feel the spirit. So we know that laughing and playing and dancing, the danza, the music, the art is important. And then she shares the teaching in love without measure. Y no tiene color. It doesn't have color. It has no boundaries. So, you know, Maestra shares with us uh, the importance of that and of healing ourselves and and knowing how to release, how to let things go when it's necessary to let them go. Because holding on to toxicity too long can then, it becomes part of you. And so we want to have these methods uh, to be able in our culture and and our traditions can help us that way. This last segment, uh, Maestra, really just focuses on healing, just uh, just on that, the important part of healing, the central part of, of the work that we do is on healing. And so let's, uh, let's listen and see uh, this uh, parting advice that she gives us. Well, first of all, make sure you have healed those wounds. The cicatrices may not be there yet, but if you know you have wounds, you have to be careful that those wounds don't become the filter for you. 
and to take care of yourselves. And I mean physically as well as emotionally and spiritually, because when we're not feeling well, our energy will be disturbed and out of balance. So that if we're going to do any kind of action that is a healing action, whether it's a temescal or a limpia, make sure that you're okay, that your mind is okay, that your heart is okay, because in that process, you will be taking on what the person is feeling. And so then you have to know how to release that so it doesn't stay with you. And to recognize that sometimes you can't do it. And depending how, you know, strong or, you know, how, however your feelings are, but it, that it's okay. That we aren't like magicians, you know, that we can turn it on. And that we need that time. Sometimes we do so many things and they're all in that relationship of healing with a lot of other people and one becomes depleted of energy. So it's important to have someone that you can go with to or a place that you can go. You know, sit under the tree just to feel that energy, to replenish that energy. And sometimes because we're so committed and dedicated and someone asks for help and they're desperate, you feel you have to do it immediately, but sometimes we can't. And then we have to say, okay, who else might be able to do this? And be open enough to recognize that I'm not the only one. Or to work in tandem with people. I do work with other women, some of the Mayan women that are here, or other women who are on this path as, as well. And uh, we get together informally, not, you know, meetings with agenda, but just apoyar or to ask each other questions and what can I do in the situation? What should I not do? All of those things, because we're all fallible. You know, what a blessing to be able to listen to an elder that has walked this path, has walked this journey and faced the challenges, but still at 85, you know, I'm visiting her. When you walk in her presence, uh, you feel light, you feel that love, you feel that energy. And and it was such a blessing just to be there with her, to see that uh, la cultura cura, that healing energy manifested. And I believe we have uh, elders like that in every community. You know, they're they're not recognized. We have, you know, grandmas and big mamas and, and aunties and even uncles and grandfathers too, because the males carry that energy too. And they're in every community. And one of the things that is important for us to to strive to do is to recognize them and acknowledge them. And sometimes their blessing is just a greeting, you know. But it's difficult in these times that, you know, you sometimes all you see in people are, are their frustration or their anger. We don't uh, really recognize, you know, that underneath the anger and the frustration, and sometimes the intolerance, because people get tired. A lot of people are just tired of the injustice and tired of the racism, you know. And I think back of uh, my mom, you know, as, as I mentioned before, you know, I grew up uh, in, in Compton, and we grew up in an era where, you know, I, I was uh, I was in school, high school, when the the first uh, uprisings happened in the in the '60s, and so I um, felt the anger and I felt the the injustice and and I saw the burning buildings and the 
looting and and the national guard came and they they posted themselves in our in our neighborhoods and there was a tank right there on the corner of my house and had people with AK47s just standing out there posting up and we go to school they'd mad dog us and intimidate us and they'd intimidate the girls and so all that energy that you felt you know it didn't help us it didn't make us feel more safe it it you know scared us more and but uh, one of the things that did happen is that my mom, you know, she she owned a cleaners. Uh, she had a cleaners there in 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 would call Watts right there in near Manchester and Broadway. And my mom, you know, I remember as a young kid getting ready to go to school, my mom would be up early in the morning, five six o'clock in the morning. She'd get up and she'd begin cooking, cooking, you know, fresh beans and rice and tortillas, fresh tortillas, and then making chile verde or carne asada and. I remember getting up and saying, Mom, what are you doing? Why are you up so early? Oh, I got to cook. Why do you got to cook? Well, I got to take food to the cleaners. Why? God, oh, well, because people are, they want to eat and want, you know. And I'm thinking, why are you giving them food? You know, I mean, I was I was a young kid. You know, taking the food, man, I want to leave some here for me. And, and I was a kid, man. I was, you know, youngster, didn't know all these teachings and all of that. And uh, just, ah, be quiet. And and she'd go and, you know, go to work. And I, after school, I'd, I had to go to the cleaners to help work and be a presser and the cleaners there and I'd walk in, you know, and there'd be people there in the back, you know, and 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 uh, and you could tell that some of them were, you know, were disheveled, homeless, and uh and, and one of the person you knew dealt drugs and another was a minister and they're all sitting there in the back. And I said, Mom, why do you let these people in the back in our shop? They're gonna steal our clothes. They're gonna she says, Hey, don't worry, they're my friends. They're my fr-. no, but they're gonna rip off. And I, you know, I'm thinking trying to take care of my mom or worry about my mom and you know, and but she had a whole different view. You know, she would feed them burritos and give them whatever they wanted to eat. And and I said, Mom, they're just taking advantage of you. Ah, be quiet. You don't understand nothing. And so she would do this. And but you know, the the the, the riots happened and uh and they were burning buildings and all on the block where my mom's cleaners was. And we were watching on the news all those buildings burning and my mom began to cry because she says they're gonna burn the, the shop down and I'm not going to be able to feed you guys. How? What am I going to do? Uh, how am I going to support you know us? And she began to cry, and she was very sad. And you know, and, and uh, she says, "Well, maybe, maybe they won't burn my 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 machine, my sewing machine. Maybe if I can just get, I can bring it home and do work from here." And you know, mom trying to think and strategize. This single mom at that time. My dad had you know already passed on. And well, a few days passed, and finally, you know, the burning and the looting had stopped, and they allowed us to go back. In that area, and we, my mom says, "Well, let's go. Let's see what I can get. What, what, what's left? Maybe machine machine is left." And uh, so we drove over there, and uh, my mom drove, and I was there with her. And and as we approached you know, her block, we saw all these buildings, you know, burned and looted and torn up and everything like that. And so we approached there and got to the block where her shop was. She she looked over and and she looked at me, and 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 then she parked in front, and and my mom's cleaners wasn't burnt. And she says, look, look, they didn't burn. And she got out and I got out and we went to the front door and she went to unlock the front door and there was a, a piece of paper on the on the door that was taped on there. And it said, uh, thank you, Miss Jessie, for feeding us and for loving and taking care of us. And my mom began to cry. And she looked at me and said, yes, you see, they're good people. They take care of me. They take care of me. And I learned a very big lesson that day. That underneath the anger and the frustration are good people. That all they want is someone to honor them and acknowledge them and feed them. But to see them 
And underneath that is, they will take care of you and they will love you. I learned from my mom that we're all as one. And later on in my culture, I learned in the Mayan language, in La Quech, tú eres mi otro yo, you are my other me, where you hurt, I hurt, where you heal, I heal. Uh, we're interconnected that way. So today we are in, you know, we're in mourning for a lot of people that have died and, you know, because of COVID-19, but we're also in mourning because of, you know, the brothers and sisters that, that have died to police violence and to all the relatives that are mourning, but also many of us are in mourning because of the injustice, you know, tired. People are tired and many people are angry too. But that interconnectedness is what's going to get us through. The interconnectedness of, of us walking together and speaking truth together and fighting together, but loving together and healing together. So we thank you for joining us. You know, we want to acknowledge you and everything that you do, all those, especially the youngsters, the young ones that are out there protesting and, you know, sharing voice and sharing truth for all those advocates that are out there that have done it for years, for those elders that have been, you know, really carrying this justice flag for many generations. You know, we thank all of you and those that are the first responders and that are in hospitals or places of care, but also the farm workers and the people that are feeding us and the people that are taking care of us and keeping us safe as well. We thank all of you. And for those of you that are healing and caring for those uh, for those people, the, the healers and the caretakers, we thank you. Let me remind you to take care of yourself and love yourself and honor yourself and take some time for yourself, you know. And as we go on this journey, we're, we're all healing together. We're all healing, but uh, let us not forget to enjoy life too, to take time to laugh. And that's why we like to party and dance because that's part of the healing. Use that music, use those songs, use those rhythms, use those prayers, use those rituals to heal yourself and fortify yourself because uh, our goal is to heal generations. But it also is so that the next generations have more blessings and more beauty and love themselves more, have less pain and struggle. Thank you all and many blessings to you. Ometeo. For more information about Healing Generations and the Healing Generations Institute, visit nationalcompadresnetwork.org and be sure to subscribe to stay up to date with our new releases.